Gentlemen, good to see you this morning. Happy New Year. The year begins when amen begins, as far as I'm concerned. It's right around Rosh Hashanah, the beginning of the year. It's great to see you. Uh, been missing you. We started our 16th year of amen, and let me just lay down the ground rules. Uh, you don't have to do anything. Just get here and eat a banana and sit down and study the Bible with us. We're just so glad to have you. Uh, most of you are not from Second Presbyterian Church, and we kind of like it that way. Uh, we like to have the heretics come in from other denominations and <laughs> share their wisdom with us. Now, we, uh, this, is, uh, this is meant for all groups, not just denominations, but people who don't have a denomination. And if you don't have a church, we especially welcome you. And uh, some guys will tell us, you know, I, I'm not sure I believe in all this Christian stuff, but I'll come on Thursdays and listen in anyway. And we really enjoy having you. And anything we can do to help you, uh, we're here to help you. And uh, it doesn't look as though we have some room, but a couple of you are going to wear out before the month is out. So there'll be seats. There's some up here up front. And in case you're afraid of being up front because you don't want to be stuck, Amen is one of those places where we finish right on time. I know that those of you at Second Presbyterian do not think it's possible for me to end on time. But if you've been in Amen, you know, wonder of wonders, we actually end right on 730. I've got a little watch here, and it stares right in my face. And I know you guys have work to do this morning, and... Uh, we're not going to keep you beyond the hour. That's part of our agreement. Every once in a while, and if I get really fired up, I've been known to go 30 seconds over, but I will apologize. But usually we're right out at 730, so you won't, you won't get trapped in here. Let me, let me uh, say just a couple of things. Uh, one is that uh, Don Riley does us a huge favor by heading up this small group effort, and I, I really encourage you to do that. Uh, we have a good time studying the Bible in here together. I think our uh, we try very uh, uh, regularly to apply the Bible carefully to our lives, but there's nothing like having some friends that you begin to build a relationship with over the year. And some of these groups, you guys have known each other for a very long time, and some of these groups have been meeting for several years. Nothing like being with some guys that, that, that you trust and that you like and sharing your insights together and encouraging each other as you seek to, to follow the Word. So we really encourage you to think about that. You can sign that green sheet and you can change your mind later uh, if maybe you don't, don't like the guys you got assigned to. But you can, you can move it around and change it, but at least give yourself a chance on it. You do have the ESV study Bible. If you already owned an ESV study Bible and you don't want two of them, uh, then you can give it to your wife. Or you can get a, we have a substitute book that's uh, one of my favorites that I'm using as I go through this study. It's by Christopher Wright who's a very fine Old Testament scholar, and he wrote a commentary. Uh, that's not, uh, uh, it's not a massive commentary, but it's a very useful one on Deuteronomy, and you're welcome to take that instead. I have some keys here. It looks like it's a Vanderbilt person. You know, they, is this yours? Who? Did somebody say? Okay, anyway, I have some keys. They're, they're going to be right here. I know you don't want to get them. Come get them now, but they're right there. We'll end on at 730, and you can go out. Uh, but it does have a V with a star on it. It means either violent criminal or someone from Vanderbilt. That's all I can tell you. <laughs> Folks, let me say, let me just, uh, for those of you who may be new uh, to us, let me tell you what we, what we try to do in here. Uh, this is our 16th year of Amen, and every year we'll take a book of the Bible or a set of the books of the Bible. Uh, one year we took all the minor prophets, uh, 12 books of the Bible, but they're all short. But we, we take a book of the Bible and we go through it, and here's why we really think that you know, once a week during the week, it's a really good idea to study together ex exactly what God is saying. We think there's something to listening to God's Word because it is unique. There's nothing like the Bible. So we simply want to study the Bible. 
But here's the second thing we do. We try to understand not just the words that are being said in that text, but we try to understand where that text fits in the total story of God's work from creation all the way to the new creation, the new heavens and earth at the end of Revelation. So we're in the midst of a grand story that's taking place. And so whenever we read a story in the Bible, we try to fit it in what we call its context. What's the historical context of that episode in the Bible? And the reason for that is that lends a lot more understanding to the meaning of the text itself. And we're going to find that out big time in Deuteronomy, that certainly you want to look at the words carefully, but you must be aware of the context in order to understand the meaning of the text itself. The third thing that we do then, first thing is to look at the text itself, secondly, to understand the big story or the context. The third thing that we do is say, okay, now, where are we in the story? Because you see, we're in the same story between creation and the new heavens and the new earth. We're in this big creation, redemptive story. So where are we in the story? And how does that historical story in the Bible come into play right now in our story? And how do we apply it? What's its meaning? Uh, What should we learn from this for ourselves in our own day? And if we ever walk away from an Amen Bible study, and we've not done that, and I can think of a few sessions when we've not done that, then we, we really haven't performed our task today. So we want to take wherever it is in the Bible we're studying, we want to be sure that we're saying to ourselves, what does this mean to us today? Now, you can look at Deuteronomy, and I know some of you are saying, Deuteronomy, last last spring when I announced that there was a collective groan in the room, Deuteronomy, what in the world do I want? Why do I want to study Deuteronomy? Why would I want to get out of bed at 5.30 in the morning and go study Deuteronomy? Good question. Well, if you'll look at this little sheet right here, and, or it's in the front of your notebooks, actually. You'll see the kind of titles that uh, are here. Well, this is good stuff. We're going to be talking about how you handle your material property, how you handle your finances, how you handle your charitable giving, why you have anything to do with the poor and the immigrants. I mean, think of the relevance of immigration right now. Well, you get it in Deuteronomy big time. What does the Bible say about immigration and about those who are aliens among us? About your sex life? I know nobody here is interested in that, but maybe you can send other people that day. Uh, and how, how do you... What about uh, Afghanistan and, and Iraq? What about whether we should have gone in or we shouldn't have gone in? What about uh, how I engage conflicts even in my own uh, business? What, what are the, the rules of engagement, so to speak, that God has laid down for his people in international relations and in personal relations? And on and on it goes. Deuteronomy is full of that kind of thing. But Deuteronomy is important to us even aside from those very contemporary and relevant and practical topics. And here's why. Take your, your ESC study Bible and turn to page 2608. 2608. And by the way, while you're turning to 2608, let me say that there are lots of valuable articles in the end of this Bible, and I just encourage you as time goes on this year, just read an article a week, and you'll get a grand education on comparative religion, uh, on some of the cults in our own day, on where we got our Bible and why we should be able to trust it, on how to interpret the Bible, on the whole story of redemption, 
summarize for you. It's absolutely wonderful, the resources that are in the back here. But one of the very fine resources in the ESV Study Bible is a listing of all the Old Testament passages that are cited in the New Testament. Now, if you look at this list, you'll notice that the two with the most citations would be the Psalms and Isaiah. They're about, about the same. Psalms has uh, 104 instances, and Isaiah has 105 instances. But look at Deuteronomy. There are 55 instances here of being cited in the New Testament in 34 different texts in the New Testament. That's a lot of citations. Now, where do most of these come? Well, you'll notice a lot of them come in Romans. And Paul makes his, if you look at those, where those New Testament uh, texts are being, um, where they're uh, citing Deuteronomy, you'll see a lot of them has to do with the teaching of Jesus in the Gospels and with Romans. Paul makes his entire argument about the Gospel in the great uh, letter to the Romans that we studied when we started Amen. And by the way, we took three years to study Romans. Aren't you glad we're not going to take three years to study Deuteronomy? <laughs> well, in fact, if we did it at the same pace, it would be six years in Deuteronomy. But uh, we, we studied uh, Romans, and Paul's argument about the gospel in Romans is really based on Deuteronomic texts. Here's why. You can't understand the Old Testament without Deuteronomy. The prophets cite Deuteronomy. If we had a, a chart that showed the prophets and the texts they cite out of the Bible in their prophetic arguments in the Old Testament, you'll find Deuteronomy with the longest list. And what they're doing is they're simply saying to their generation, and this would be hundreds of years after Deuteronomy, the prophets are saying to their generation, let's get back to what God told us in the first place. Let's get back to the arrangement, the relationship we have with God, and let's live in light of that together. The prophets said that over and over again. So you really can't understand the warp and the woof of the Old Testament without the book of Deuteronomy. It's, it's central. It's essential to understand the message, as we, as we shall see, I think, pretty early on in our study of Deuteronomy. But secondly, you really can't understand Jesus Christ and the New Testament without the Old Testament. So you can see the connection. You can see why the preacher gets excited about Deuteronomy, and I hope you will be as we go through it because it's of the very essence of our story. It's of the very essence of who God is in His relationship to us, and I don't think we can really understand it without it. Let me give you one classic example. Do you remember that after Jesus was baptized, He went into the wilderness. He was sent there by the Holy Spirit to be tested by the evil one, to be in some ways kind of probated before He began His public ministry. Jesus goes into the wilderness and the, the devil comes to him and offers him three massive temptations. You know, that if he'll bow down and worship, uh, uh, or first of all, he says to, to Jesus, change these stones into bread because Jesus had been fasting for 40 days. He was very hungry. The devil said, change these stones into bread. Use your miraculous powers to feed yourself. For after all, he said, if you are the son of God. That is, if you're really who you say you are, you can do this. And Jesus says to him, Thou shalt not live, uh, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Where did he get that text? Right out of Deuteronomy. And then Satan says to him, If you'll bow down to me, I'll give you all the nations. And Jesus says, God alone shall you worship. Where did he get that text? 
right out of Deuteronomy. And the same with the third temptation. All three times, Jesus, in his battle with the devil, he's citing Deuteronomy. You know what? We could do a whole lot worse. We need to learn that Jesus himself went into the wilderness once again. Now think about this. Deuteronomy, as we're going to see, is set in the wilderness. That's the historical context, right before they come into the promised land. Jesus goes into that same territory where Moses in this text is talking to the people. Jesus goes into that same territory to be tested just like Israel was for 40 years. Jesus goes for 40 days. Jesus accomplishes what they didn't accomplish. They failed. He was triumphant, and he did it for us so that in Christ we succeeded in the wilderness in his 40 days of facing the devil and all the temptations that Israel faced and failed. He faced those temptations, citing the word of God in Deuteronomy, and then began his public ministry. It's a wonderful, wonderful story. And Jesus redeems the whole, all the failures of the wandering children of Israel for 40 years in the wilderness by that great act. But once again, the point is, he goes back and he's doing Deuteronomy. He's doing the wilderness journey. And Deuteronomy was obviously in the head and heart of Jesus Christ as he carried out his public ministry. So it ought to be in our hearts too. That's the argument. Are you convinced yet? <laughs> if not, we'll, uh, I better stop. We better study the Bible. Well, folks, uh, let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 1. And if you've read anything in the introduction, and I encourage you to go back this week and read that good introduction in the ESV Study Bible. It'll give you a great context uh, for understanding this book. But basically, here's what's happening. The children of Israel have been traveling uh, through the wilderness for 40 years. And in just a few moments, we'll talk about why it took them so long. They were there for 40 years. And now they're right on the verge of crossing the Jordan River and going into the land that God had promised them hundreds of years ago, 470 at least years ago, God had promised them this particular land. And so this is a seminal moment in their lives. And what God is saying to them uh, through Moses is basically Moses' farewell address. Now, I don't know if you've ever had the opportunity, maybe with your father or your grandfather, for someone to give you something like a farewell address. My dad knew that he was dying of cancer. And so as he, he uh, was getting closer and closer to the end, he would have these little moments. And I remember two of them in particular. I certainly remember the very last moment, the, the last words out of his mouth to me the day before he died. He went mute uh, the day of his death. But the day before he died, I, I do remember what he said to me. It was profound. But I also remember what he, what he said when he gathered his children, his adult children around him, and he explained to us why he was not afraid to die. And he read to us Psalm 23 and encouraged us to put our hope in the Lord. You think I'll ever forget that? These, these are powerful words. Or when at his, right before his death when he told me, above all things, serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Now you have to understand, my dad was not a religious man. <laughs> I mean, he was a Christian but you wouldn't have known it <laughs> for a large part. A lot of the time, he, was, he loved to, to raise hell, basically. I mean, he, you know, and he, he would tell me, tell me stories, and I'd say, Dad, don't tell me those jokes for two reasons. Number one, uh, I can't tell them in public. <laughs> and number two, I can't forget them. And so stop it. Uh, 
I had to discipline my own father with his dirty jokes. So, but he, uh, he was, uh, so you can tell he was a troubled man, but he was, he was a, he was a believer. And so I remember what my dad said to me. And, and, they, and because of the, the sense of humor that he had and the way he kind of liked to live life large, uh, the words were even more profound in some ways. I think, where'd that come from? Well, I know where it came from. And so when we have those farewell addresses, if you've ever had one, uh, they're unforgettable. That's what this is. Moses is 120 years old. That's old. And he has been called out of retirement at 80 years of age to call them out of Egypt and get them into the promised land. And right now he's right on the verge of getting them in the promised land. Now, if you know Moses' story, you know he's not going to be able to go over. He sinned against God, and part of God's discipline was that he not go into the promised land. But Moses now is sitting right on Mount Nebo, and some of you have been to Mount Nebo, and you can look over and see the promised land. And he's there at that moment in his life, at the end of his life, and he knows it. And he's going to deliver some important words for his brothers and sisters, the children of Israel. And they were, in a sense, his children. Because the entire generation had passed away that started out in the wilderness because they had disobeyed God. And they passed away. It was now their children that were before Moses. He was like an old, old, great, great grandfather to everybody who was there. And now he gives to them the most important thing that they can have is they want to enter into life and take hold of it. They have set before them this wonderful land of milk and honey, the land of opportunity, the land of freedom, no more slavery, the land of self-governance, the land of God's blessing. They had this great future ahead of them. And basically Moses wants to say to them in this farewell address, brothers and sisters, you must learn how to live in the promised land. You must learn how to take hold take possession of the land, and furthermore, take possession of all of God's promises. And gentlemen, as I look out over the populace of men in this city, I see men who have set before them all kinds of freedoms, all kinds of possibilities, all kinds of opportunities to serve, and they're not taking hold of them. We're frittering them away in a variety of distractions at the best. And that's the reason Deuteronomy is so important. We too are on the verge of something significant in our lives, to plug them in to the way God intends us to live them, to plug them in so that we take possession of His promises to us. That's where we are in the story. And the same lessons that applied to them in this farewell address apply to us. Now let me go ahead and show you in general the outline of this talk, if you'll, uh, of his talk in Deuteronomy. If you'll turn back one page, page 329, I'm sorry, page 325, all the way to the beginning of the introduction of Deuteronomy, look at the lower right, and you'll see something called ancient treaty structure. There's a box down there on page 325, ancient treaty structure. And you have the chapters of Deuteronomy on the right. Let me tell you what this is all about. In the second millennium, that would be the years between 1000 B.C. and 2000 B.C. That's the second millennium. In the second millennium B.C., there was a common practice between a suzerain king, that would be the big cheese, like in Egypt or in, uh, later in Babylon or uh, in Assyria, or in this case with the Hittite kingdom. You had a big king who had little subsidiaries, subsidiary kings. 
And it'd be kind of like the Queen of England is the big queen, and then you've got prime minister uh, who serves under her. Or the queen is the big queen, but Canada has their prime minister, Australia has their prime minister, but in the old days that was part of the United Kingdom under the queen or under the king. So what we're talking about here is a treaty between the big king, the suzerain king, and what we call his vassal kings or his subordinate kings. We actually have some of those documents today, 3,000 years later, 3,500 years later. One of the famous ones is from the Hittite kingdom. And here's how those agreements go. The suzerain king, of course, sets all the terms. And here's the way he works. In the covenant or in the treaty that's established, it begins with a preamble where we introduce who the people are that are talking. I'm the king of Hittite, uh, of the Hittite kingdom, and I'm addressing my uh, suzerain king who's king of the Canaanites, da-da-da-da-da. And then there is a rehearsal of their relationship. That 30 years ago, our kingdom conquered your kingdom, and da-da-da-da-da, and give all the military history. And so you get the background of their relationship together. The next thing that happens is the suzerain king writes in the covenant, and here's how you shall perform now. Here's what is required of you. And here it is in general scope, in general principle, like a constitution. And here are some of the statute laws that come from that. Here are the particulars that were in the general uh, stipulations of our relationship. The next thing that comes is the whopper. He says, if you don't, you are going to look like the dead animals that we're sacrificing at this, this ceremony. And there's an announcement of a curse on the, suzerain, on the vassal king if he does not obey the suzerain. And then at the very end, there are witnesses that are there testifying to the document. Now, that's how an ancient treaty form works. Gentlemen, that's exactly what Deuteronomy is. Look at the outline here on page 325. And you'll see that it starts off with the preamble, the historical prologue. This is what's happened in our relationship. Here are the general stipulations. And what do you think the general stipulation is? Well, of course, the Ten Commandments are right in the middle of it. Thus, the name Deuteronomy which just means second law. And it was called that because of the Greek word for Deuteronomy, somewhere in the text of Deuteronomy. Uh, but the he- Hebrew word uh, for this book is, is the Hebrew words for just the very first words that say, these are the words. That's the Hebrew title for this book. These are the words. But the Greek title was Deuteronomy, second law. So you have general stipulations, then you have specific stipulations, which are extremely helpful for us. God the suzerain is saying to us, the vassals, here's how we're going to work together. Here are the stipulations. And then you get to the blessings and the curses, which Deuteronomy is famous for in chapters 27 and 28. If you obey, these will be the blessings. If you don't obey, these are the curses. And then you have a document, you have a document clause and, and witnesses. So uh, God shows in this document through Moses who the witnesses to this arrangement are. Now, what's especially gracious of God in Deuteronomy, as we're going to see, and this, gentlemen, men around the world who know something about Christianity miss this. They get this document that God tells us what we're supposed to do, that thou shalt and thou shalt not. And this is what God is going to do to us if we don't. Everybody gets that. Our, Our moral conscience resonates with that. But here's what we don't get. This document anticipates 
not Israel's success. This document anticipates Israel's failure. The curses are that if you disobey God, you will be spit, you'll be vomited out of the land. You'll go into exile. Gentlemen, what happens 600 years after this document is written? Because of their disobedience, they're taken out into exile, just as God warned. But what does this document do? It shows them how to get back. Yes, you came under the curse of the law. Yes, you came under the discipline of the Lord. But I know you're going to do that. And I'm going to bring you back. That is implicit in this document. That is the reason, gentlemen, that the prophets kept preaching this document. Because they were preaching to people in, the, uh, in Jeremiah's time and Isaiah's time, they were preaching to people who were in exile or who were getting, just getting ready to go into exile. And they said, look at the book. Let me tell you, first of all, how you got into this mess. Let me tell you, second of all, and more importantly, how to get out of this mess. This is a very gracious document. And it's something that if you don't get into the context of the entire story, you might miss it. And it looks like just another shouting of the Ten Commandments into your face. It's much more than that. It has to do with this a relationship that God makes with His people that is absolutely unbreakable. And that's the kind of light in which men must walk in order to live meaningful lives. We must be confident that our Father really loves us and has a plan for us and is going to keep us when we do all of our stupid, idiotic, rebellious stuff that He has a plan for us and that He doesn't stop being our Father. Okay, I said we're going to get in the Bible. Let's do it. Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 1. Let's read. These are the words that Moses spoke to all Israel beyond the Jordan in the wilderness, in the Arabah opposite Suf, between Paran and Tophel, Laban, Hazeroth, and Dizabab. It is 11 days' journey from Horeb by the way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. In the 40th year, on the first day of the 11th month, Moses spoke to the people of Israel according to all that the Lord had given him in commandment to them after he had defeated Sion, the king of the Amorites, who lived in Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth and in Edriah. Beyond the Jordan in the land of Moab, Moses undertook to explain this law, saying, The Lord our God said to us in Horeb, You have stayed long enough at this mountain. Turn and take your journey and go to the hill country of the Amorites and to all their neighbors in the Arabah, in the hill country and in the low land, in the Negeb and by the sea coast, the land of the Canaanites and Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. See, I have set the land before you. Go in and take possession of the land that the Lord swore to your forefathers or to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob, to give to them and to their offspring after them. At that time, I said to you, I am not able to bear you by myself. The Lord your God has multiplied you, and behold, you are today as numerous as the stars of heaven. May the Lord, the God of your fathers, make you a thousand times as many as you are and bless you as he has promised you. How can I bear by myself the weight and burden of you and your strife? Choose for your tribes wise, understanding, and experienced men, and I will appoint them as your heads." And you answered me, the thing that you have spoken is good for us to do. 
So I took the heads of your tribes, wise and experienced men, and set them as heads over you, commanders of thousands, commanders of hundreds, commanders of fifties, commanders of tens, and officers throughout your tribes. And I charged your judges at that time, hear the cases between your brothers and judge righteously between a man and his brother or the alien who is with him. You shall not be partial in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not be intimidated by anyone, for the judgment is God's. And the case that is too hard for you, you shall bring to me, and I will hear it. And I commanded you at that time all the things that you should do. Amen. First of all, let's notice that in the preamble, God is introducing Himself and introducing us. And what we're going to notice in the preamble and the historical prologue, this first part of the treaty arrangement between us and God, is that we have failed. And our history is primarily a history of failure. Moral failure. Leadership failure. Failure of intelligence. We've been foolish in many ways, as the Israelites have been. When we look at who God is, we're going to see that His goodness and His grace and His holiness trump all of our unfaithfulness. He is faithful in in the face of our unfaithfulness. That's what we see in the preamble. That sets the stage for Him to give us His commandments. He reminds us how we got to this place at the Jordan in the first place and that if God were not faithful to us, we wouldn't be there anyway. And gentlemen, you wouldn't be here if God were not faithful to you. You would not be here. And your preamble, your historical prologue is the same way. You have failed and I have failed and God is the one who has gotten us here, which is the only foundation for us to think about our future relationship with Him and our future engagement in this city and the world. Well, let's look at how faithful He has been. Let's look at who God is in this preamble, which is the purpose of these introductory words. First of all, we see God speaks to the heedless. What that means, you could say the headless, but we're saying the heedless. God speaks to people who don't heed His Word. Think about what these people have been doing in the wilderness. As soon as they got out of Egypt, they started complaining and murmuring. They tried to commit mutiny against Moses and his brother Aaron and his sister Miriam. These people complained all the way. After they got manna that came down out of heaven and they had water out of a rock, now they complain because they don't have the delicacies of meat. And they want to go back to slavery because they don't have meat. So what does God do? Sends them back into slavery. No. That's what you would have done. Here's what He did. He sent them quail. Is that good enough? Thousands of quail blown in by the winds and just plops it right down. Now what are you going to complain about? Well, they find something. And then when Moses goes up the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments, what are they doing? Making themselves a different god out of gold, a golden calf like they used to worship in Egypt. And when God takes them right up to Kadesh Barnea to go right into the Holy Land, what do they do? They complain because the people are too big and they don't think they can whip them. That's the history of Israel. They've been completely heedless of God's commandments to them. They've not trusted Him. And what is He doing? He's staying with them and He keeps talking to them. It's amazing. And gentlemen, it doesn't matter about your background. It doesn't matter what you did yesterday. It doesn't even matter what you said to your wife before you left the bed room this morning. God's still talking to you. And there's a reason He's talking to you. Because He loves you. <laughs> That's all I can say. I mean, any of us, if we had somebody ignore us 
as much as we ignored him, would you even waste your breath? Look, God speaks to the heedless. And how does he do it? Let's notice several things quickly. First of all, he does it in covenant. These words, these are the words. These are the words. That's covenantal language. That is how Hittite treaty begins. That's how all treaties begin. These are the words. And so Moses is obviously using the same arrangement. He's talking about God being the suzerain and we're the vassals. And so he's making covenant with us. It's very obvious from the very box uh, that we show there uh, and that you saw on page 325. Secondly, notice that he speaks through the prophet. He's speaking through Moses. In verse 1, Moses spoke. In verse 3, according to all the Lord has given him. So don't tell me this is not God's word, this is Moses. Don't tell me this is not God, this is, the, this is Paul. Or this, you know, this is not Jesus, it's just Paul. No, God speaks through sinful men. Moses was a sinful man. That's the reason that he didn't get to go in the, into the promised land. But Moses was God's appointed agent through which God speaks. That's what Deuteronomy is. Authored by Moses, obviously the latter part uh, is appended by someone else because Moses had died. But fundamentally, Deuteronomy is a mosaic document. And through Moses, God is speaking just as he did through the other prophets and the apostles. And what you find, if you'll turn back one page, you see an outline. And, and what the outline shows you is that fundamentally, this is made up of three speeches of Moses, three farewell speeches. So Moses is speaking, but when Moses speaks in the Scriptures... God is speaking in the Scriptures, and that's the only healthy way to hear the Scriptures. Now, notice thirdly that God speaks to the heedless for all the church. He says in verse 1, to all Israel. There are no exceptions. The word applies to everybody here. And then there are no exemptions. Nobody is supposed to excuse themselves from the assembly. No, all of the people of God come together. All of us hear the word of God. It's for everybody and it's for everybody together. And that's the reason that in some of your Bible study, in some of your prayers, in some of your praise, it needs to be in community. So it is important for us to have our private Bible reading, our private prayers, and our private worship. But some of it needs to be in community because God speaks through the prophets and the apostles to all Israel. You'll notice, fourthly, that it was at the boundary. We are told in verses 1 through 3 that this was beyond the Jordan in the wilderness, just beyond the Jordan. It is 11 days' journey, he says, but then you notice uh, in verse 3 it says, in the 40th year. Would you please put those two things together? It takes 11 days to hike from Mount Sinai to Mount Nebo. Why in the world does it take you 40 years to get here? Well, because when they went up to Kadesh Barnea and turn back in your Bible two pages, and you'll see on page 327 the map. You see at the bottom left that Mount Sinai is just below that arrow. The people had come up around Elith, which is on the Red Sea there, which is a beautiful area if you've ever been there. And then they were... they. Sent, they went up to Kadesh Barnea and sent spies in. And when the spies came back, ten of them had a very poor report. These people are too big and powerful. We can't do it. And only Caleb and Joshua had a good report. And the people, who do they believe, of course, they took the majority. 
Ten to two only makes sense, doesn't it? No, it's wrong. Sometimes the majority is wrong. And God judged them for their lack of trust in His promises. So what happens? An 11-day journey takes 40 years because God says, this faithless generation, they're still my people, but they're going to pass away. What, what this church needs, he says, is a few funerals. Not a few. We're going to have a whole bunch of funerals and get rid of an entire generation that's not served me, and I'm going to raise up the next one. Gentlemen, if you want to get passed by and just wait for God to wait for your funerals, then okay, stay disengaged, stay unimpassioned. If you want to be used of God and go on into the promised land, come on, let's get it going. It doesn't matter how old you were. It happens to be that Moses was 80. Some of you are a little older than 80, but not a whole lot of you. So come on. Which generation is going to do it? God's going to choose one who is responsive to his word. It's that simple. doesn't mean he doesn't love you. doesn't mean that you're not going to heaven. But it means when he does his mighty works, he's going to take people who listen to him. He'll keep talking to us, but the question is not whether he's going to love us enough to keep talking to us. He'll be our father. But are we going to be faithful sons? So they're at the boundary. Now, what's important about this, gentlemen, is that we're at the boundary too. Deuteronomy is actually, in many ways, a missionary book because the people are getting ready to go in and take hold of a huge challenge. And Deuteronomy is reminding them why they must move ahead in this challenge. And if you're engaged in the mission of Christ's church, you've got a huge challenge ahead of you. When I travel to India or Cambodia or Africa or, or Australia, for heaven's sakes, or worse, Western Europe, I am stunned with the challenge ahead of us. I would be overwhelmed with the challenge ahead of us were it not that God simply calls us into it, and I know that He doesn't call us into something, that He doesn't equip us to perform. When I look at the city of Memphis, and I look at the racial division, and the economic problems, and let me tell you, whatever you're experiencing in the suburbs, gentlemen, in the urban area, just multiply it by two. Whatever troubles we're facing in the suburbs in these economic times, multiply it by two. Our folks who are serving in the city are just getting flat worn out. They cannot meet the needs that are before them because of these economic times. Or if I look at the school system, I look at all the things that trouble us in this city, I say, this is just too overwhelming until I look at the call of God. And look what this call is. It has us on the boundary, and it's saying, I want you to go in and take it. Now, look at what these people were facing. This is not in this book. It's in the next book, Joshua. What were they facing before they go into this land? They're facing, they're facing a land full of very big people. We already know that. They're facing a first city they're supposed to take, which is Jericho, which they can see from Mount Nebo. I've been there. And they can see Jericho. It's a walled city, a very powerful, fortified city with very mean people in it who are ready to take them on. They also are facing the Jordan River, which wasn't trickling like it is now. You can barely see the Jordan River. It's almost not there. It's... It's so dried up. In those days, there was a real river there, and it was at flood stage. So there was a swamp that was about three miles long between them and Jericho. You got, you're getting discouraged yet? That's what they were facing when God tells them, I want you to go into the Holy Land. So I, it doesn't matter what we're facing. This is the bottom line. It doesn't matter what your challenges are. That doesn't determine what you do. Here's what matters. Who's your commander? What resources does he have? What track record of performance is his? That's what matters. 
And that's what Moses is giving to the people. So they're on the boundaries. They're, they've got this massive call to go in and take a land that doesn't belong to them. They have, they have they, I mean, they've come out of slavery. What, they have no chariots. They have no horses. They have no army. They have no, they have no training. Who are these people? Glad you asked. They're the people of God. It was just that simple. Now look at this uh, second thing God does. He defends the helpless, and we're going to just touch on this. Because we are told in verse 4, after he had defeated Sion, the king of the Amorites, who lived in Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, who lived in Ashroth and Edrei. This is just a, an aside almost. But, and gentlemen, you can turn to Numbers chapter 21 and read the story. But here you have these powerful Moabites and Ammonites who are on the east side of the Jordan. And before these folks even get across the river, they've got to defeat two very powerful kingdoms. Who do you think did that? And when the king of Moab called in the expert, the religious expert, all the way from the Euphrates River, all the way over from Iraq, asked him to come over and perform a priestly religious duty, namely to pronounce a curse on Israel. What did God do? He did not let that, that religious man, that shaman, pronounce a curse on Israel. In fact, when he tried, his ass, I'm not talking about this part of his body, I'm talking about his donkey, his ass would not cooperate. Why? Because God shows up with a soldier, an angel with, with a sword, and scares the bejabbers out of the ass. And the ass starts complaining Back to Balaam. We have a talking ass. There's nothing anybody can do. You can call the religious experts. You can call the most powerful kingdoms in the world. There's nothing anybody can do. When God sets His hand upon His people, He defends them, gentlemen. And He will defend you. When you go into His task and His mission, when you hear His call and you're doing His work, Remember, you have the resources of Almighty God at your, uh, at, at your feet because He loves you and you're His child. That's what we learn from Sion and Og. Let's move on. Thirdly, th- let me tell you who this God is. He inspires the hopeless. Beyond the Jordan and the land of Moab, Moses undertook to explain this law. And notice what he says in verses 5 through 8. First of all, he commands us to leave where we are. The Lord our God said to us in Horeb, You have stayed long enough at this mountain. Now, he's recounting what God had said to them before. He says, let's get up and go. You've been here long enough. Some of you have been in Bible studies long enough. I don't mean that you stop studying the Bible. Just like God didn't mean for them to stop paying attention to the law. But he says, you've got the law now. We've been at the foot of the mountain. You've seen the mountain smoke. You've heard the law of God. Let's now get on the move in mission. Gentlemen, he's saying the same thing to us. What's the purpose of Amen Bible study? Keep hearing the word. And then at 7.30, you've heard the word. We've been here long enough. Come on, get out there into the workplace where it's tough and where you're going to face all this opposition we've just been talking about, where it's very daunting for some of you to live a Christian life. We've been at Mount Sinai. Sinai. Let's get up now and take possession of the land. That's what he's saying to them. So you have from God a, a call to leave. Secondly, he calls us to go. 
Turn and take your journey and go. He's not just saying, okay, you're dismissed from Amen Bible study or you're dismissed from church worship or you're dismissed from your Sunday school or dismissed from your small group. He's saying, let's dismiss and then let's go. Let's go into the battle. And he, look at the, this wide, sweeping, breathtaking description of the land they're supposed to take. Look at this. The hill country of the Amorites, the Negev, all the way to the seacoast, the land of the Canaanites, Lebanon, the river Euphrates, all the way over to Iraq. It's breathtaking. These people who have been slaves for four centuries are supposed to come and just take over the Middle East. Whew. He says, why? Because you're smart? Because you've been so obedient to your commander. Because you've helped Moses all along the way. Or because you're such religious people. Or because all your jokes are clean. Or whatever it is. No, here's the reason. Because I'm commanding you. And I promised this land to you. So take what is yours. I promised it. And if I promised it, it's yours. Now, secondly, we must take possession of it. He promised it, but we must take possession of it. Go in and take possession of the land. Thirdly, it is our inheritance. The Lord swore to your fathers. You're in a story. It was not promised to you first. It was promised to people centuries before you, millennia before you in our cases. And gentlemen, let me tell you something. We're still in this story. Abraham is my father because I'm in Christ. That's what Paul says. When you are in Christ, Abraham becomes your father. Isaac and Jacob, that great trio. And so we're the true Israel if we believe in Jesus Christ. And the promises of the Old Testament, the promises of Deuteronomy apply to us. You say, now, what are you saying to us, Pastor? Are we supposed to go over there and take over Israel and Iraq? No. Because Jesus and the apostles explained that one too. That's, that was the Old Covenant. That was just a symbol, just a sign of what our real ultimate inheritance is. Our inheritance is the perfect Holy Land. Our Jerusalem is a new Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven, Revelation chapter 21. And that's what we're waiting for, is the new heavens and the new earth, and it's ours. Claim it. Why would you worry about the things that are happening on this old, worn-down earth that's just winding down when we have been told we're at the verge of entering into the promised land? Take hold of it. Go in and get it. Get a heavenly-mindedness for yourself. Get the joy of the benefits of belonging to Christ. All the promises of the Old Testament devolve upon the people who believe in Jesus Christ. It's our inheritance. Now, lastly, notice, we got six minutes to look at this. Notice that God also transforms the hapless. Who are the hapless? Well, it's kind of like the luck of the Irish. They're just people who, things just don't go right. Well, <laughs> you know, did you see Tevye in Fiddler on the Roof? <laughs> just, if you're familiar with that character, there you have it. You know, just, my cow gets lame and my, doesn't provide milk and my daughters go off and marry these Gentiles and everything's going bad. Oh, so God, so you're my God. I wish, I wish you'd pick somebody else to be your child.